Welcome to Ask Paul Kirtley episode 19 and in this episode we're going to talk about various aspects of bow drilling including using natural cordage, we're going to talk about winter tents, we're going to talk about skills to learn as a beginner, we're going to talk about axes and in particular axes for beginners and we're going to look at some other aspects of equipment organisation as well as whether or not you should wear your clothes in your sleeping bag. Welcome, welcome to episode 19 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And I'm out on a hike today. I'm back in the northeast of England and I've just stopped. I'm gonna have a, have a coffee while I'm here talking to you. Um, I'm up here in the northeast because just recently it was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, their golden wedding anniversary. And so I've come up to visit. It's also my birthday around this time of year. So it's nice to get together for a celebration. And actually, we, um, we headed out for a meal in a local uh, small market town near to where they live. We headed out for a meal last night and uh, not long before we did, it started snowing. So it's been really nice to, to come out today in, in the snow. A lot of the ground is frozen. There's, uh, there's a misty air in the, in the distance and it, it's really quite beautiful. Um, and this area here is one that I used to come to as a kid. Um, my parents moved here when I was 10, so that's 30 odd years ago now. And this area here is one of the areas that I used to come to with some of my friends from the village, which is a mile or so away. And we used to come and play here. We used to come and play hide and seek, but also as we got a little bit older, it's also the area we used to come and practice some of our survival skills we'd uh, got hold of some survival manuals and in particular Lofty Wiseman's survival handbook. I was given that when I was 13. So that was 30 years ago I was given that book. Um, fantastic job Lofty. Um, still a testament to survival knowledge that book even after all of these years. Um, and we used to come here and we used to build shelters and light little fires and try and replicate some of the traps and find some plants. And, and this is one of the areas that I first started learning about trees and plants as well. I started to become familiar with them. Even if I didn't know what they all were, started to become familiar with all the, the trees and plants found in this, in this environment. And then later on, I started to formalize that knowledge and learn what they were called and, and more about what they could be used for and which ones were poisonous. So this, this area here has got a real, um, it's a real place in my heart in terms of both, uh, you know, childhood memories and also it being very close to where I started really my journey over 30 odd years of learning bushcraft and survival skills. And I very much started from a, from a survival mentality because that was back in the 1980s. And then with the advent of, of Ray Mears coming on television and Moors Kahansky's books and then studying and working with Mears, it, it all progressed from there. But this is kind of where it started from me, for me in terms of my, my learning journey. So 
It's great to be doing an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley from here. And we've got quite a lot of questions. It's a couple of weeks since I've done an episode because we've had Christmas and New Year celebrations and all of that holiday season in the meantime when a lot of people, quite rightly so, are away from work, they're away from um, computers, they're away from the internet. So I've done the same. I've had a bit of a break from that. And then we're getting back together again mid-January now, just after mid-January. We'll, uh, we'll get going with the Ask Paul Kirtleys again. And it's my aim, I'm not one from New Year's resolutions, but it's my aim, if I can at all possibly do it, is to put one of these episodes out every single week in 2016. So an Ask Paul Kirtley every single week in 2016. As long as I get the questions, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna start making questions up so I can answer my own questions just for the sake of making a show. But as long as you keep bringing the questions to me, I'll keep answering them. And actually, I do have a bit of a backlog again now. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't get all of the, of the November and December questions that I got answered in uh, December and we're in January now, so we're gonna crack on. We're gonna try and get quite a few done today and then there'll be another episode out next week catching up with more questions. But do please still keep the questions coming in. And I'm gonna drink my coffee as we go because it's a bit chilly here. So good, good warm black coffee's good. Mobilizes the fatty acids in your bloodstreams as well. And uh, it's another reason for drinking black coffee on cold days. All right, we've got an, a range of different questions here. Some are from SpeakPipe, some are from elsewhere. And we'll start off with this one from Jess Hines. I'm gonna have to take my glove off. It's not that cold, I'm not gonna get frostbite. It's only hovering around zero. Today, zero degrees Celsius, about freezing point. So this question is from Jess Hines. Vice speak pipe. Hi Paul, Jess Hines here from Raleigh, North Carolina. Love your stuff, just started listening. Um, my family has been campers for a, a long time. We've uh, camped since I was young, um, but I've just been starting to listen and wanna, wanna learn more, really, really liking all your bushcraft stuff and wanna learn it so I can also uh, teach it to my boys and have something, you know, kind of to do when we get out in the woods and stuff. So are there, three things that that you would suggest that i focus on first from a um, education self self-training perspective thanks keep up the good work cool well nice question jeff nice to have a question from the united states and down in the carolinas too a little bit different to this part of the world but um, a lot of commonalities as well um Areas that I would concentrate on just generally from, you said self-education, so I'm assuming you mean to, to, to work on your own skills, but I also assume that you're going to be passing those on to your boys as well. And working on the assumption that you guys are good with, with camping in general, then a few things that I would work on. First of all, one of the most important skills, if not the most important skill, is firelighting. And certainly I would look to be working on your firelighting skills. And that of course means different methods of firelighting. So from making sure you're good with matches and Swedish fire steels, and there are, there are videos on my blog and on my YouTube channel which can help you with that and point you in the right directions. But certainly be able to light things with small flames, be able to light things with sparks. And a lot of people then, when I say that to them, they concentrate on the gadgets, they concentrate on 
the sparking devices and there's lots of discussions about which ferro rods are best and which size and what hardness and yeah that that can be important at the margins but what i think people should focus more on is what do you actually drop the sparks onto what materials are available in your locality that will accept a spark either directly or after being dried or after being processed in some sort of way. That is normally a field expedient method. You don't want something where you have to take it and prepare it over a long period of time. You want something that you can take and prepare in the field that day so that you can accept a spark um, in, in whatever weather. So that's something I would be looking at. What materials can you be dropping a spark into? What materials will easily accept a small flame? Because that's really the kind of core that you're going to be using on a day-to-day -day basis. And then also extend beyond that in starting to look at what can be used for friction fire lighting in your area. And I would use bow drill method to start off with don't focus at all on the other methodologies bow drill is the most widely applicable method of friction fire lighting you've got the most mechanical advantage um, the rotational movement and the downward pressure are separated mechanically you operate those two parts independently unlike say hand drill where you're working them together and the range of materials that you can affect a fire with with bow drill is wider than other methods so focus on bow drill find a material that works well in your area practice with that until you can get consistent with that material and then extend and experiment with other materials that you find in your area and that's a process that will take some time and then once you've got your ember of course you then need to introduce it to materials that can take that ember to a flame and of course that also requires you to understand the materials that are available around you and some of those materials will be familiar to you from dropping sparks and so that that all starts to dovetail together and also i'm gonna i know i've got another couple of questions about bow drill later on in this episode so stick around and listen to those as well because i'm sure they will they will help so fire lighting your core skills, your day-to-day -day stuff that you're going to use, maybe with some modern fire lighting techniques that are very reliable, matches and sparks and lighters, get that really nailed down. But use it as an opportunity to learn more about the natural environment around you. Don't get focused on the gadgetry. So the gadgetry is not important. The materials that you can use are important. And then extend that knowledge into using natural materials to actually create that initial start of your fire create an ember and then you've got much more self-reliance in that environment and you're going to know a lot about what's available in your environment and those skills can be extended into other environments then as well cutting tool use is probably one of the things that differentiates bushcraft skills from typical outdoor skills so whether it's rock climbing or mountain biking or horse riding or backpacking in general once we start using natural materials to serve our purposes and relying less on manufactured things that we take with us relying more on materials that we're going to find from nature around us from the bush and from the woods we're going to need to start fashioning those a good cutting tool is important um, not something to be obsessed about either but just a good strong small fixed bladed knife that you can use to fashion things from your bow drill set that you're going to be working on with your fire skills through to other things that you need around camp so you say your campers one area that i would be looking for you to do would be to extend your camping skills into more of the old-fashioned woodcraft and camping skills and there's a great um, heritage for you down in the in the southeast of the states there with people like horace kephart so if you haven't got kephart's book get hold of horace kephart's woodcraft and camping books 
There used to be two separate books. They're now available as a combined volume. I'll put a link to that book. Um, it'll be a, a UK Amazon link, but you'll get the ISBN and stuff. I'll put that in um, in the show notes below this. And also maybe Mason's uh, Woodcraft and Camping book as well. Bernadette Mason's book is very good as well from a North American perspective. Those two books um, will give you a lot of ideas in terms of the woodcraft and camping skills that you can practice while you're camping. And a lot of those require the use of a cutting tool so you can work on your cutting tools. Make sure you're safe with your cutting tools. And certainly when, if you're gonna be encouraging your boys, I don't know what age they are, but if you're gonna be encouraging your boys to be using cutting tools and starting whittling, certainly make sure you follow the basic safety rules for cutting tools, working outside of your body, away from your body, um, outside of the areas where your main arteries are. There's a couple of good articles that I can link to, again, in the show notes. One on my blog, one on my uh, Frontier Bushcraft uh, site, uh, my company site that was written by one of the people who worked for me. And that's, uh, that one's aimed specifically at young people, written by Emma Hampton. Um, that's all there and um, make sure that uh, you have a look at those. Um, it's all common sense, but there's a couple of things sometimes that surprise people. And there's a couple of things in particular that you need to remind kids to do because they get very enthusiastic about the activity. They don't always think about the ramifications of the actions. If you can instill that from an early stage without being too heavy handed with them, but just you know, treat them like adults, treat them like gr little grown-ups, to explain to them why you're doing these things, then they understand the reasoning and then it becomes ingrained in their practice as well. So that's, that's good. And then generally I would look at your identification of trees and plants in your locality, because without that, if you can't recognize the resources that you're gonna to need to extend your bushcraft skills in general, then you're not gonna get very far. Again, I think a lot of people focus very much on kit and equipment, and of course we need, we're not gonna go out just in our underpants, um, typically certainly not in this weather, um, but uh, a little, being a little bit facetious there, but the point is um, we all need equipment. Um, we're modern people living in a modern way, going out and taking some equipment with us. Even if we're making it at home ourselves, we're still taking equipment with us. We're outside of environments where it's warm enough all the time to just be going out without very much clothing and without very much equipment. We've extended our range way beyond where we're comfortable naked and therefore we need clothing at least. We need camping equipment to stay warm overnight. Fires are obviously very important to stay warm. Those skills and our ability to manufacture things have allowed us to go further, but equally we do need equipment. But don't get obsessed with it. You're already a camper. You already know what you need to go out and camp and stay warm and be comfortable outdoors. Bushcraft then is, for you, is about looking at the natural environment and extending your knowledge of, the, of that environment and the resources that are available to you. And one of the key things for anybody in any environment is to be able to identify, you know, what is, this is bracken, these are brambles, uh, this is a fallen sycamore tree. We've got hawthorn over there. All of these resources that are around me, I can recognize them. I know what they are. Even in the winter when there's not so much around, I know there are usable resources around here for certain aspects of things that can help keep me comfortable, at least on, my, on, my, on the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Can fire, shelter, food. I can sort those things here, even in this weather. And so, that is what I'd encourage you to do. But until you can recognize what's around you, it's just a bunch of wood and twigs and leaves and branches, and you need to be able to see beyond that into what you can, what you can use 
and that requires you to identify specifically what those things are and what the usable resources are. And that's advice for anybody, anybody that's looking to further their bushcraft and survival skills. If you can, if you've mastered all the fire lighting um, possibilities in your environment, if you understand how to go out with minimal equipment and set up camp and make a lot of things to make your life comfortable and easy in the outdoors and have good use of cutting tools so that you can quickly and efficiently do those things without being unsafe and use and identify resources that are around you that's bushcraft to me that's bushcraft so those three things are the things i think you should be focusing on great question and a good platform for me to give general advice to anybody that's listening to this so thanks a lot for that thanks a lot jess and good luck and let us know how you get on let us know how you get on keep in touch next question this is going to be quite a quick one this is from terry in essex and he asks paul a sleeping bag question if i wear uh, too many spare clothes in my sleeping bag. Will it stop the sleeping bag working efficiently? Thanks, Paul. Keep up the good work. Okay, no worries, Terry. Thanks for the question. Um, it's particularly pertinent at this time of year because people have a tendency to be worried about the cold if they're camping in the colder months of the year and they tend to put on more clothing when they go to bed because they're a bit cold. But that does cause some problems potentially. First off, if you wear a lot of clothes, when, if you're a bit cold when you go to bed and you're wearing clothes, you will warm up potentially relative to the temperature that you need to and your, your body temperature actually wants to drop as you go to sleep. Actually, that's actually what causes you to go to sleep. Um, but what happens then is at some point you'll wake up too warm in the night um, and through some stages of sleep you don't sweat um, through REM sleep, I, I believe, you don't sweat. Um, when you're not doing REM sleep, you can sweat. And so you can wake up sweating. So you can have a period where you're not sweating and then you can wake up too warm and sweaty. And even if you don't wake up too hot, um, you do give off some moisture throughout the night. And it's reckoned to be at least about a Coke can's worth, a, a soda can's worth, um, about 330 millilitres or, or a, I don't know what that is in fluid ounces. Sorry, my, my understanding of Imperial is a little bit dingy now in the back of my mind. Um, but a Coke can's worth of, of fluid overnight. And that's going to go out into your surroundings. And that's why you want to be airing your sleeping bag off in the morning. But if you're wearing clothes, it's going to, some of that's going to be retained by your clothing. And then when you get up in the morning, your clothing is going to be somewhat damp. More so if you've been too warm at some point during the night and sweated into those clothing um, pieces. If you don't have a change of clothes in the morning, which why would you necessarily, um, then you're going to have damp clothes on early in the morning, which is about the coldest time of day. Um, that can leave you very, very cold in the morning and struggling to get warm. So for that reason, make sure you've got a, a sleeping bag that is rated for the time of year that you're out. And make sure that if you're gonna wear anything at night, just wear a single thermal layer. So a merino base layer like I have here that I'd be wearing during the day. I'm happy to wear that at night when it's cold. Um, and maybe some long johns. Um, socks are always good. Socks and a hat at any time of year can make a real difference to how warm you are in your sleeping bag. So those are things to think about. Don't pile on lots and lots of clothes. If you've got a jacket, 
um, whether it's a duvet jacket or even a waterproof jacket, if you feel too cold at night, put that over you like an extra blanket, just like you would in bed. You know, think about what you do at home. If you're cold in bed at home, you don't tend to get up and put more clothes on. What you tend to do is go, I'm gonna put another blanket or another duvet over the top of me. Do exactly the same when you're out. It's, it's much better to have good insulation underneath you so you're not sapping warmth into the, into the ground. And then if you're too cold, apart from having a base layer on, um, which just protects you and insulates you a bit from your sleeping bag and sleeping kit, have stuff over the top of you. I used to work with Lars Falt in Northern Sweden on Arctic survival courses. And although we're not necessarily talking about Arctic survival here, we're talking about winter camping in general in the Northern temperate zone, which can be chilly, it's damp, it feels cold. Um, but the, the old adage that he used to say, it applies equally, which is have a lot under you, a lot over you, and not very much on you. So that would be my general advice as well. And then the other thing about wearing lots of clothing inside your sleeping bag is if that then squashes the sleeping bag, it constrains it, particularly if you're inside a bivy bag. And so the sleeping bag is getting squashed against the side of the bivy bag because you're wearing lots. Um, it's the air in the sleeping bag that keeps you warm. And if you're compressing it, there's less insulation there that makes the sleeping bag colder. So you want to be minimizing the moisture in your sleeping bag by making sure your temperature is right. And then you want to make sure that you're not getting up with damp clothing in the morning. And you also want to make sure that you've got good insulation over you, good insulation, good insulation under you, good insulation over you and not too many clothes on. And if you are a bit chilly, remember to make sure you're using the baffles on your sleeping bag properly. Socks and a hat make a big difference. And the other thing is getting to your sleeping bag warm, a little bit too warm. So when it, in cold conditions, you can get into a sleeping bag and that sleeping bag is going to be the ambient temperature. So it's zero degrees Celsius here around freezing. If my sleeping bag has been out in this temperature all day in my rucksack, apart from a bit of warmth for my back, it's going to be at the ambient temperature. So that means that when I get into it, I'm getting into something and touching something which is zero degrees or, or very close to it. Um, much better to get into that too warm and use that excess heat to warm up my sleeping bag, bring my temperature comes down a bit, but the sleeping bag temperature comes up to close to my temperature and then I'm still warm enough. And that's a common mistake that people make. So even just doing a little bit of fizz, um, jogging on the spot or doing a few press ups or squats or something before you get into bed, make yourself a little bit too warm, not sweaty, just a bit too warm, get into the bag, warm the bag up, let it heat through with that excess body heat, and then you can take some more layers off um, to get right nice and comfortable. Make sure you've got a hat um, to hand as well, uh, and you'll be good to go. Um, but again, it all starts with having a sleeping bag that's the right temperature for the season that you're out. So good question, Terry. Short question, longer answer, but hopefully that helps. Next question comes from Yeli Vesluis and this is another speak pipe question. Hi Paul, first off, thanks a lot for the valuable information on your blog and videos. I have discovered your blog recently and I'm enjoying it ever since. I can see you put a good amount of time in there and I'm surely grateful. I was welcome. wondering how you store your wallet, passport and phone while on trips and out in the field. I tend to leave my wallet and passport at home, but sometimes you're obliged to bring them. Many thanks, yellow flies. Okay, that audio is a bit splashy, so I'll just repeat the question. Um, the question is basically, 
personal items that you might need to have with you like uh, wallet, phone, passport, when you're out in the field, what do you do with them? Or what do I do with them? And um, yeah, clearly there's a difference if I'm traveling domestically or if I'm traveling internationally. Um, domestically, my passport's at home, it's locked away, safe. Um, wallet and phone, I tend to have my wallet and phone when I'm out. Um, you know, most of the things that I do in the UK, unless I'm staying with somebody and we're walking out directly, from their house you know so i have friends in scotland i stay with them so andy chatterton for example i stay with sometimes I, my stalker friend up in um he's a deer stalker not a criminal stalker deer stalker friend up in scotland i stay with him in his remote cottage i don't tend to take my uh wallet out with me um when we're out stalking i might have my phone with me because they are an emergency communication device even if they're switched off um so i tend to have a phone with me most of the time and what I do with my phone is I'll have it in some sort of dry bag and that could be just I might just have a ditty bag in my day bag that I put my phone in I put my wallet in it's a little dry bag that keeps everything safe when I'm canoeing it's double bagged if not triple bagged so that same ditty bag then goes into a real heavy a heavier duty seal line um, dry bag again it's mainly for little things that are you know car keys wallet phone that sort of thing you want to make sure that stuff stays dry but generally first line of defense is a small dry bag in a day bag day pack um, also the other thing i found really really useful for all of these things are a lock sacks and i think generally they're known as lock sacks now they drop the a off the beginning they used to be known as a lock sacks which is how i was first introduced to them now known as lock sacks you can get different sizes of them they're quite tough they are submersible there's one size i can't remember the size exactly off the top of my head but the one size is perfect for passports it just slots in seals at the top they're very very good so whenever i'm traveling i and i don't need my passport out so going through customs and airports and what have you i have my have my passport in one of those because if my bag gets wet for any reason um that's going to keep my keep my passport dry and i use the same sort of bag for my phone sometimes so if i want to have my phone in my pocket but stay dry you know these fjall raven trousers are great but if i get rained on in these they're going to still be wet through even if you do re-wax them with the greenland wax they're not completely waterproof things in the pockets will get wet so even just walking through long grass so i tend to like to have my phone i have a case for my phone generally just to protect it a little leather case inside that and then inside an a-lock sack sealed in my pocket that's going to keep it safe um, and then wallet again similar thing sometimes i pop it in an a-lock sack but more generally it's in a day pack when i'm hiking um, or out doing anything and then other things might go in there as well car keys wallet uh, sorry phone passport all of that stuff with my wallet together um, so generally it's kind of like layers of the onion a-lock sacks are first line of defense ditty bag just in a day pack or a rucksack second line of defense and then if i'm somewhere where i may fall in the water and my kit may go in the water then i've got it in a dry bag um, and that's generally canoeing where i'm most worried about that so that's that's how i that's how i look after it i tend to like to have those things on me even when i'm traveling internationally um you know if i'm out for uh if i'm out traveling unless i'm staying in a in a place that's nice enough to have a safe in the room i tend to have those things with me i, I tend not to leave passports and wallets with outfitters or trusted people because 
it's my stuff. I'm the person who's going to look after it most. And, that, and, and particularly passports when I'm traveling, if you get stuck in a country without a passport, that becomes a bit of a pain in the backside. So I trust myself to look after my passport the most and therefore I like to keep it with me. But I do like to keep it in an A-lock sack most of the time. Just, you know, somebody could spill a drink on your bag in the uh, in a restaurant you know you never know what's going to get things wet so i am a little bit uh, cautious in that sense but that's that's what i do a lock sacks very very good okay question from cyril flanagan about bow drilling and his question is i've been thinking about setting myself another task regarding bow drill fire lighting but i wanted to ask your advice uh, if I wanted to make my own cordage to make a bow drill and I want the cord to last long enough to create an ember under the rigorous back and forward motions for a prolonged time, what material would be best used for the cord and are there any extra tips you can give to help achieve an ember using all natural materials? I was thinking of nettle cordage but I have no idea if it would last long enough as I've never tried this idea before. Kind regards, Cyril. Okay. Um, a general point and it's not a dig at Cyril. If you have an idea about something that might work, try it. As long as it doesn't put yourself at risk, of course. But you know, if you think nettle cordage might work with bow drill, try it because you will learn so much more than me telling you it does or it doesn't. Um, and equally, I could tell you it works, you could try it, it might not work for you. Um, so there's, there's something to be learned from the trial and error methodology. But equally, I'm happy to give you some guidance. So. Um, nettle cordage is quite strong uh, lengthwise as you know as long as you make it well um, it's not massively abrasion resistant um, and so it might be worth doubling it up just to so make it cordage and then lay that up again just to give it some more weight and um, wearing against itself is also an issue you know where the where the cordage wraps around the drill and it overlaps that's under quite a lot of tension and that will potentially rub with any natural cordage and that's also some of the rubbing that you get with nylon cordage um, so any cordage that doesn't have a lot of abrasion resistance is going to fare poorly at that stage so again if you can make it a bit thicker even if you've got the strength that way you need the abrasion resistance there so doubling it up to give it more chance to to braid through before you before you get your ember um, before you've had enough time that's a good idea just to make it thick enough um, so some thicker nettle cordage can be worth experimenting with but if you can then get something to lubricate that cordage and it needs to be a fine line because otherwise you can lose grip on the uh, on the drill itself so maybe a bit of beeswax but be 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 light with it because you just want to just sort of keep the fibers together stop it from stop it from rubbing against each other but not so much that it's going to slip on the on the on the on the spindle and it's a bit tricky um, the other thing that we've experimented with that we found quite um that's got a lot of potential although it's quite variable is uh, brambles green brambles quite thick brambles um these are dead of course but green thick brambles again lay it up get fibers out of it lay it up into cordage that's got potential and i would recommend you experiment with that but the natural material that was used for uh, bow drill was rawhide 
We know that's what was used by North American uh, First Nations. They used rawhide and a rawhide thong was something that was carried. The rest was potentially made in the bush. Rawhide thong was carried like we might carry paracord now. But clearly they were part of that natural economy where they were hunting, they were uh, gathering um, foods, they were hunting deer and moose, they'd prepare the hides, they'd cut strips of rawhide, that was then their strongest cordage. And actually it's better, it's more durable than paracord. Ironically, even though we're all obsessed about carrying paracord around with us, um, rawhide is longer lasting and better. So if you want the ultimate natural material for bow drill, it's rawhide. But if we're talking about plant fibers, have an experiment with nettles, but you need to make it really good cordage and thick enough. And that might mean doubling up or have a go with brambles. Um, that's in terms of the cordage. The other thing is we should recognize is that with nylon cordage we get away with murder when it comes to friction fire lighting. We get away with being really quite sloppy with bow drill because we can we can use materials that are too hard and um, where we have to apply a huge amount of pressure to get the, the, the amount of friction that we need and the cordage will stand up to it. Um, once you start using plant fibers you need to be more subtle in your choice of materials in terms of the hardness, in terms of how quickly you'll get an ember, how quickly you get an ember with any uh, cordage. So what you should be looking at, another part of your experimentation and training should be just use paracord, use something you know you can get an ember with and then refine your material selection so that those embers are coming quickly and easily. So you might know here, for example, sycamore. It's one of the first materials that I got friction fire with yep. the, in, in this area actually. Um, so some of it can be really quite hard though and some of it can be almost too punky. The same with other materials like willow. Um, so refine your material selection so that you're not having to bow for so long. That then gives your natural cordage more chance to work. So it's that combination of really good cordage making combined with really good material selection of the actual friction parts, making everything as good as it can be to minimize the chances of it failing, that's where you're gonna get it to work. If you're applying the same logic as you do with your nylon cordage, where we've got a, a fairly broad window of material selection, um, and then you're trying to apply, get your cordage up to scratch to meet that, your, your, nat your, your Natural fiber cordage is not going to be as abrasion resistant as paracord. The outer on paracord is designed to be abrasion resistant. The, the strength of paracord is on the inside, the abrasion resistance is on that outer sheath. Okay, you can't make that from natural materials, so you need to be a little bit more supple, subtle and sensitive with your material selection so that you can make the cordage good enough that will last long enough to get a fire with that stuff. So there's two two pronged approach there and hopefully that helps Cyril. And that's a really good challenge to, to set yourself for, for 2016. 
Thanks, by the way, to everyone who left me their uh, sort of resolutions and, and challenges and aims for this year with their bushcraft and survival skills underneath episode 18. That was really, really nice to read through all of those. There's some really good ideas there. There's some really good ch personal challenges there. And I look forward to hearing how everybody does with those. And if I can help with any of them, please do ask. Ask Paul Kirtley or tweet me or whatever I can do to help. Another bow drill question. I'm going to crack on with these quite quickly because the light's starting to go. Um, so this is from Isa and his question is, Hi Paul, I've succeeded in using the bow drill method to make fire on several occasions. I'm however not as consistent as I would like uh, to be. So I'm trying to perfect my technique. On your article about the bow drill, you say that the motion should come from the shoulder and not the elbow. Yes, and I'll link to that article below this uh, video in the show notes on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. Um, so Isis question continues, does this mean we keep the elbow absolutely still or simply that the majority of the power should come from the shoulder uh, with the elbow still allowed to move a little? Yes, that is, that is what I mean. So a lot of people are quite rigid in the shoulder to start off with and it's coming from the elbow. Um, whereas you actually want to swing from the shoulder and um, just use the elbow slightly to maintain a horizontal bowing technique. So use the elbow to adjust, let the swing and the power come from the shoulder. Um, so you loosen the shoulder, let the shoulder swing, and then make sure that your legs are out of the way of your arm so that you're not having to hold your shoulder still and just twiddle your elbow. You won't get the power from your elbow. Um, Second part of Isa's question is, I also sometimes lose my ember once it's in the tinder bundle. The tinder is dry, tightly packed, and I have plenty of it. I usually make a handle to avoid burning my hands, but despite all these measures, I sometimes find the ember goes out. Is this because I bury it too far into the bundle? Um, I give the ember plenty of time to establish itself before transferring it to the tinder bundle. Thank you. Okay, so, Two-part question. First part, yes, swing your shoulder. Use your elbow just to adjust horizontal bow, not up and not up and down, horizontal. Second part of the question. Now you say you're getting, a, you say you're collecting enough materials, and you, but then you also say that you risk burning your hands. So to me, if you're going to burn your fingers with your tinder bundle, you haven't got enough material. So. You know, look at your assumptions there. You're saying, I've got enough of this, I've done this, 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 and this. Okay, well, if it's failing, maybe some of those things are not as good as you think they might be. I don't know the specifics, I would need to see them. Quite happy if you wanna send, send a video of yourself to me showing what you're doing, that's absolutely fine. But generally, I would say, if you're worried about burning your fingers, you haven't got enough material. And I don't know what materials you're using either. Some tinder bundles need to be bigger than others. Like bracken, you tend to need more. Things like sweet chestnut in a bark, you can get away with less. Honeysuckle, you can get away with less. So it depends what you're using. Um, tightly packed, it needs to be tight enough packed so that there is contact between the ember and the fibrous material that you've made your tinder bundle from, but not so tightly packed as it's either crushing that, that ember and just create them knocking it down to dust. If you're squashing it in too much, you might be crushing your ember and also you might be starving it of oxygen. That could be an issue. 
Also, if you've got a huge bundle and it's buried a long way in and it's very tightly packed and you're blowing, you're maybe not getting enough oxygen to it. But that's, I don't know if that's likely. I'm, it absolutely needs to be consolidated. Keep it in the first front third of your bundle. Make sure it's covered up. Most people don't push in enough, so I doubt you're crushing it too hard. Um, and make sure you're blowing, but not so hard. Often people blow too hard and disintegrate the, the uh, ember in the tinder bundle. And once it's dissipated, you lose that critical mass, you lose that concentration of heat, you're not gonna transfer it and get your tinder bundle burning. So what I would say is make sure it's not too deep in, about a third of the way in, so open up your tinder bundle, be ready like a little bird's nest, carefully put it in, don't disturb it, keep it solid, keep it um, integrated, bring it together, your hands on the outside, pushing in, making sure there's good contact between the ember and the material, and then blow. And don't blow too close, because you can blow moisture into it, and also you can blow too hard. If you can whistle, that's the sort of um, strength of blow that you need to be putting into the, into the tinder bundle. If you're, if you're blowing really hard, then you're probably do, doing it damage and putting it out and just disintegrating and dissipating that dust. So like you're whistling. And then when you're breathing in, keep it moving, keep the oxygen flowing through and then bring it back, blow again, not too close because you don't want to blow moisture in about there. Away, breathe in. And then you're not breathing so much smoke in either and bring it back. like so. That might be it, I don't know. Um, generally, people don't have enough contact between the material and the ember. So what happens is everything burns out in the center and it doesn't spread into the rest. But um, if you want to narrow the question down a bit more or even send me a video of it not working from start to finish and then I can analyze it further but hopefully that helps hopefully that helps Isa but please feel free to ask further questions if you need more clarification my phone has locked itself let me get back in next question also I've let my coffee get cold here Next question, another pertinent one for this time of year. This question is from David Ward, a little while ago. Sorry, it's taken me a while to get back to you, David, from the end of November. David's question is, hi, Paul, how do you keep your fire dry if it starts raining or light a fire and protect it if it's already raining? In the UK, you'll appreciate this is a relevant question for novice bushcrafters like me. Thanks, keep up the good work, much appreciated, David. Yes, and, and dampness and moisture is an issue in the UK, you know, whether it's precipitation or just generally damp conditions. Couple of things, um, think of a fire as a chemical reaction. Think of a fire as something, it's a chemical reaction and it is, once it's going, you've got an oxidization process there that gives off a lot of heat. Um, it requires oxygen, it requires fuel, and it generates heat, and it, it maintains itself by heating uh, more fuel, and, and that reaction carries on. Um, there's a certain amount of heat given off by any fire. Also, think about a hot plate at, at home on your cooker. It, when that's hot, if you drop a droplet of water on it, it'll just go and evaporate and disappear. The same will happen with your fire. If 
you have a fire that's a similar heat to your hot plate at home, you drop a drop of water on it, pssh, the heat of that fire will, dis it will dis disintegrate the droplet, evaporate off, the fire will continue going. Now clearly the more droplets you put on it, the more heat is being taken out of the fire and the harder it has to work. And maybe a small fire and a heavy downpour is gonna be put out. So the answer really is a bigger fire. If you're out in the open and it's raining on your fire, what will, what will protect your fire is building the fire up more. More heat, more flame will fight and work against that water. And then the water that lands on the fire will be evaporated. Now your fire won't be as hot for the given size of it, it won't be as hot as it is on a warm sunny day. And in fact, if you go to Australia or Africa and have a fire there, it can surprise people from temperate zones, particularly damp, colder temperate zones, um, how hot small fires are in places like South Africa and Australia, because there's no moisture to work against. Everything's dry, often as well the firewood's quite dense, um, but there is no moisture. The ambient temperature's higher, there's no moisture, and it's hot because it's not working against anything. So if there's more moisture for the fire to work against, have a bigger fire. That's the first thing. Second thing is, when you're lighting your fire, clearly that's hard to do. You have, if you haven't got a flamethrower, you've got to start with something small. And a, and a few drops of rain can put out a match, um, and also they can destroy the, the beginnings of a, of a fire, however good your fire lighting. So, what you need to do is make sure that it's protected. You can do a lot to protect yourself, um, protect it yourself just by hunching over the fire, protecting it from the wind. Um, those things are, are all important. And again, there's a few articles that I can link to in the show notes below this in terms of how to light fires in the rain, lighting fires with one match, best practice. Um, if you're using something like birch bark, make sure there's a lot in there because all, if all the twigs are damp on the outside, they should be dry on the inside, of course, but if all your small sticks are, are wet on the outside, again, you're gonna need more heat to evaporate that off and then the heat gets the fuel and your fire takes off. Um, so more birch bark, more fuel um, at the beginning. And this, or if you're using any other fire lighting material, whether it's natural or man-made, just more of it to take that small flame into your fuel if that fuel is a bit damp and it should only be damp on the outside. You know, if it's raining, you can be collecting dry twigs off a, off a tree, but if it's raining, they're still gonna be wet on the outside, even if they're dead and dry on the inside. So you need more heat to drive that moisture off. Um, remember your platform. Yeah, your platform is really, really important. Clear the ground. Platform of dead, dry sticks on the ground. If it's super wet, double it up, crisscross, okay? Again, there's material on my blog that can help you with that. I'll link to it in the show notes. Plenty of fuel, plenty of kindling, build it up. Have plenty of material to pop on to start off with. Most people start with a fire that's too small and it struggles. Yeah, you want something with a lot of oomph very quickly. So again, look at those articles that I link to below. But also what you can do is if you've got a tarp or anything that can create some sort of shelter over the top, whether it's a survival bag or a rucksack liner or anything or a bin bag that you can put directly over where you're lighting your fire to stop the rain landing directly where you're lighting your fire, that will help. A friend holding your jacket or their jacket over you while you light the fire can be enough just to make the difference between the rain destroying it and it, and it working. And then of course, once you get the fire going, you can 
get dry, but you have to be sure that you're getting the fire going if you're getting yourself or your friend wet, if you're taking your waterproof jacket off. But I've used that on a number of occasions, uh, numerous occasions, not, you know, lots of occasions we've used that with, with people, particularly people that I work with. And um, when we're out and about living in the woods, you know, it rains, um, getting a fire going when we get to a new spot, often take a jacket off, hold it over the top, get the fire going, and then you get warm warm and dry very, very quickly. That's a, a method that works well, but it's better to use a tarp if you've got one. A lot of people are reticent about lighting fires under tarps, but even if I was to light a good size small stick fire, maybe the flame and the heat might come up to here. If I get a tarp a bit higher than that, it's gonna keep the rain off, but it's gonna protect that area and it's gonna stop the rain hitting my early stages of fire. And if I build a huge fire after that, I can always take the tarp down. Um, just be careful not to drop it into, into the fire. But the other advantage of having a tarp over a fire is that rather than the heat all carrying off up into the cosmos there, up into the air, um, I get to the tarp and that warm air recirculates and comes back down and I get this nice recirculation of warm air so I can actually get away once I've got through that first stage of getting my fire going where the flames might be higher, then I can actually get away potentially with a smaller fire, but just conserving the heat more efficiently underneath the tarp. That means then I don't need to collect as much firewood or I can be more efficient with the firewood that I've got. So I would, just to reiterate, plenty of fuel. Make sure the, the makings of your fire are very, very good. Refer to the articles, plenty of, double up on any fire lighter whether it's birch bark or man-made fire lighters or what have you um, in cold damp conditions try and protect it if it's raining the early stages of your fire either holding a jacket or a rucksack or a rucksack liner or a tarp over the top and then if it's actually raining and you need to offset the effect of that rain bigger fire those things should stand you in very very good stead great questions today great questions guys and girls okay Next question is a speak pipe question. Hello Paul, it's Adrian Spring with yet another question. Um, I was wondering, in your possibles pouch list, you have a backup compass, a small silver compass I think. Have you had any issues with the accuracy of your compass changing due to being stored with other metallic items? Do you also have any top tips for compass care and maintenance or storage? Many thanks. Keep up the good work. Loving the show. Thanks, Adrian. Good to hear from you again. Um, we, now that I'm making one of these every week, I'm not sure you're going to get a question in every episode anymore. But, well, you know, that's a challenge for you this year. We, we, we can see if we can manage that. Um, but to answer this question about compasses, yes, I have a small backup compass that I take with me in my, in my possibles pouch. Um, don't always take it with me, but it's something that if... Losing my compass is absolutely critical, then I'll make sure it's with me. It's a small silver compass. They're very, very good. They're not that cheap, but they're very good. And you can use them pretty much like a normal sighting compass. Um, in terms of storing stuff, no, the main issue with compasses that can happen is that they can reverse polarity. So north can become south, south can become north. And this is something that you're warned about in books uh, on navigation. It doesn't happen very often though. I know of a few people it's happened to. It's never happened to me personally. Um, Chris Townsend, I remember, uh, mentioned it recently that it happened to him with one of his compasses and it had never happened before. Um, so yeah, these things can happen, but that's mainly what can happen. It can, all of a sudden your north needle can be pointing to the south and south can be pointing north because the, the remember the needle of your compass is a magnet itself. 
And if its polarity is reversed, it's going to spin and be 180 degrees round from where it should be. So that's the main issue in terms of permanent effects. But obviously, if your compass is near any metal materials when you're using it, there can be intermediate effects where it's pulled off to one side or the other, and you're going to, going to get an inaccurate bearing and inaccurate sighting, um, or you're going to be work, walking on uh, an inaccurate bearing so those those things can be an issue but that's just down to having you know have you got a knife in your pocket or gps <laughs> that's the ironic thing people carry gps's in their pockets here and then they're carrying their compass and the the gps can throw the throw the uh just the metal in the gps can throw the compass off you know people setting off for a day walk with their map and compass on the bonnet of their car getting their first bearing and um, you're on a big lump of metal and that's going to affect your compass so holding walking sticks you know hiking poles that are made of metal they can affect your compass uh, ice axes metal belts so think about those when you're using your compass those are the things to be thinking about um, and just double check at the beginning of the day and the end of the day or when your compass has been stored that it hasn't reversed polarity um, that's just something to be checked on an ongoing basis so those those are those are things to be thinking about and then in terms of compass care the main thing is have a good case for it so it doesn't get knocked around they are quite fragile delicate instruments so a, a little padded case a cordura case or a little leather case for a compass is a good thing to have um, even when it's in your pocket if you're not using it all the time just a case is is a good thing to have and certainly if it's in a pack um, have a little case for it and then if you're traveling if you're flying take your compass in your hand luggage rather than it going in the hold luggage because it's less likely to get a bubble in it due to changes in pressure because the cabin's pressurized um, you know not all hold luggage areas are pressurized the same as the main uh, compartment and therefore you might end up with issues with bubbles being popped into the fluid of your compass and once you do get that what happens is because of the surface tension of the fluid the the the, the needle tends to stick to the bubble or the bubble sticks to the needle and stops it working as well as it did do otherwise so take your compass on a plane in your hand luggage that's the other tip that i would give you um, and then just be careful not to drop it or kick it around or <laughs> any of the things that might damage it okay good question adrian thank you Next question, and it's getting a bit dingy here now. Um, another one from Isa who asked about uh, bow drills earlier on. And this is a quick question. Um, which tent is better for places like Alaska and Canada in the winter? Uh, the snow trekker or the tent teepee? Well, both will serve you well. I've used both tent teepee tents, the canvas ones, and snow trekker canvas tents in Arctic forest environments, and they both work well. Um, my personal choice though would be the snow trekker for two reasons one is um tent teepees are teepee shaped they come up to a point they're conical and um, the hottest air in any structure is going to be up in the top because hot air rises um, the best place for drying out your kit is high up in a tent the highest part of a tent teepee or any teepee shaped shelter is quite small because it comes up to a point, comes up to an apex because it's conical. So you don't have a lot of room up in the warmest part of the tent that is available for drying off your kit. And if there's four guys in there, all with jackets and gloves and boots and boot liners and mitten liners and things that need airing off at the end of the day, there's not a lot of room in a tent teepee tent in seriously cold conditions where you're out for long and you need to keep the um, 
you need to keep the moisture out of your clothing. That's one reason. Um, the other reason is I don't like the stoves that come with tent TP tents. They're too heavy in my view. Um, they have gone from the old vertical cylindrical stove, which was horrible to feed wood into because it was burning vertically. It didn't burn. It's hard to damp that down and leave it burning for long. They've gone to a horizontal stove, but the last model I used, and I'm quite happy for them to send me something newer to try, but the last model I used was very heavy. It was like something made in the Victorian era out of boilerplate steel. They're so, so heavy compared to the stoves that you can get to go with something like the uh, the Snow Trekker tents, the standard stoves there are quite thin, box metal, very good little stoves, or even something like the four dog stoves, the titanium stoves, which are, which are very light but very expensive um, by most people's standards. But the, 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 the ones that I've used that come with the tent teepee tents are just way too heavy for serious travel, particularly man-powered travel in those environments. So um, for, for both of those reasons, I prefer the Snow Trekker tents. I like the uh, horizontal apex where you can get a lot of kit up to dry, high up, out of your way, not near to the near to the chimney either, because remember the chimney goes up out of the tent TP tents in the same zone that you're going to be drying clothes. That then becomes an issue. You can damage kit more easily, I think, in tent TPs than you can in snow trekkers, where you've got the tent at, um, with with the stove at one end, with the aperture at the side, with the chimney going out the side, all your kit up at the top, um, drying out at the hottest part of the tent. So that's my personal. That's my personal uh, preference. But the tent TP tents are good, but I prefer the snow trekkers for those reasons. Um, question from Josh on axes. Last two questions are on axes and I'll keep this fairly brief because we've been going for a while, but I know that I had a backlog of questions and I want to try and catch up a bit today. So this is from Josh Denton and he says, hi Paul, love the series and have listened since the beginning. Thank you, Josh. And uh, I have stumbled across the article on Frontier's page about bushcraft kit for less than hundred pounds. I think it's a great idea and a good way to show people that they can get out without spending too, too much money. Only thing is I noticed was the lack of axe and wondered whether this was deliberate as you guys don't see it as essential. Okay, or is, I understand the question. Or are they outside the price range for starting off? Is there a budget axe you would recommend? Um, so there's two questions there really. Do So that article about a bushcraft kit for £100 was really about um, there's an obsession with equipment in bushcraft. And as some of the questions, um, my answer to the questions earlier in this show suggested, to me, bushcraft is about knowledge of nature, understanding the materials that are around you, being able to use those to your best advantage. We do need some equipment to go out and camp mostly um, efficiently. We can build shelters, of course, but good shelters take a long time and they also are somewhat damaging to the environment. You need to harvest quite a lot of resources for natural shelters and if you're out in the cold like now you also then need quite a big fire you know if we're all doing that all the time we're going to deplete natural resources that are available so we do need to be conscious of our decisions and deliberate and intentional about what we do and so you know a lot of the time we're going to go out with a tarp and a bivvy bag and a sleeping bag and then it allows us the time Rather than spending all day building a shelter, it allows us the time to practice other skills or hike from A to B or whatever we're doing. So, you know, 
this thing about, oh, well, if you're doing bushcraft, you have to be sleeping in a natural shelter. No, you don't. So you're gonna take some things with you to camp sometimes, even if you're doing things in a bushcraft style or practicing bushcraft skills or working on um, tree and plant identification or animal tracking, you're gonna be camping under a tarp and all of those things. But there's an obsession with expensive equipment. Um, there's plenty of cheap kit. You can use a builder's tarp and a secondhand rucksack and you can get out quite cheaply. And that was the point about this article is get away from the kit obsession, buying expensive stuff. A lot of expensive kit is designed to be really, really um, abused and taken to extreme environments. If you just go into your local woods and camping out with a fire, you don't need all of that stuff. You don't need super lightweight kit that you can hike the Appalachian Trail with. You don't need really hardcore kit that's gonna last six months in Alaska without resupply. You just need to be able to get to the woods, put a tarp up, sleep out, have a fire, cook your dinner, and go out and look at the things that you want to look at, practice the skills you want to look at. So absolutely, um, there's plenty of inexpensive equipment that you can, you can do that with. When I was a kid, I used to come and camp in this area. We had rubbish old sleeping bags a cheap 20 pound tent that my mate had that was two man tent, three of us used to sleep in sometimes, or we'd build a shelter and um, we'd cook a, a tin of beans for dinner. Um, these woods haven't changed since then. I don't suddenly need super lightweight, expensive equipment to come here, just the same as I did when I was a kid. I came here as a kid with a cheap tent, a cheap secondhand sleeping bag that my dad found in my granddad's cupboard and we cooked a tin of beans for dinner. I could do that now and it would cost me virtually nothing. And that's the point we're trying to make there is that you don't need to be investing huge amounts of kit before you feel like you're entitled to go outside. Now, when it comes to the ax, there's a couple of issues. One is um, an ax isn't super necessary to practice or start practicing bushcraft skills. What is super necessary is some sort of cutting tool. As I mentioned to Jess back in the earliest question, get a, a simple fixed bladed knife like a Mora to start off with or something more fancy if you want to or, or handmade. Um, but the point is that you start practicing those skills. Um, you don't need an axe to practice most of the bushcraft skills that you can practice. Axes are very, very useful. They make certain things quicker, more efficient, and they make certain things possible that weren't otherwise possible. But they also come with an increased risk. The um, the, the chance of an injury might not be higher with an axe than a knife, but the severity of an injury with an axe tends to be higher. And so I would caution against rank beginners, particularly that maybe don't have hand-eye coordination um, developed over some time of just using smaller cutting tools from starting wielding an axe all over the place. Because if you hurt yourself, and I've seen some pictures on Facebook relatively recently of some really nasty injuries, um, you know, you hit yourself in the shin or the kneecap or the other hand, you're gonna do yourself a lot of damage and that's gonna put you back a long way. So I'd caution about that, just be careful with axes. Um, second point with axes is, yes, they do, a decent ax does cost some money. Um, a lot of people use the Gransfors axes and they're, you know, they're gonna take a good amount of that simple kit budget up in and of themselves. Cheaper axes, um, look at Hultafors, and I particularly quite like the Wetterlings axes, uh, the Vetterlings, however you want to pronounce it. Um, they're nicely made and um, they're less expensive. So Halter Force, probably the cheapest ones, Wetterlings in the middle, or a little bit more expensive are the, the, uh, the Gransfors axes. I'm just watching some blackbirds there chasing each other around. Um, and remember, a lot of people will spend several hundred pounds or several hundred dollars on a bushcraft knife, 
But then they look at the axes and they go, oh, 60, 60 pounds for a small forest axe or 60, you know, 60, 70, $80, that's a lot of money. Well, actually you're getting a lot more tool for your money than you are with the knives, but people say, seem to be happy to spend the money on the knives and not on the axes. So that's another, maybe that's another value judgment that needs to be looked at. Um, I think you'd be better off spending, you know, 10 or 15 pounds on a Mora knife or 10 or $15 on a Mora knife and buying a, a, a Gransfors axe than spending $200 or £200 on a handmade bushcraft knife and not being able to afford an axe or just buying a cheap axe. That, that's my personal view. Um, so that would be my advice. Do be careful. Again, safety first with the axes. There's a couple of videos on my, on my blog that can help you with that and on my YouTube channel, but what doesn't cover all, all the safety issues. So do be, do be careful. Last question is from Richard Tiley. It's a while since I've heard from you, Richard. Nice to hear from you. Um, and his question is also about axes. And his question is, hi, Paul, there seems to be an increasing number of axes available that have been marketed as suitable for bushcraft use. Yes, indeed there are. Um, I tried a Gransfall small forest axe for a number of years without giving up on it, but because the lack of weight, uh, no, sorry, I read this incorrectly, sorry. I tried a Gransfall's small forest axe for a number of years before giving up on it, because of the lack of weight and awkward length of the handle. Which axe would you recommend for say a week in the woods using it for general gamut of bushcraft woodland tasks? Many thanks for any guidance. Best wishes, Richard Tiley. So yes, the, the small forest axe has become kind of the bushcrafter's axe of choice in a lot of ways, partly because uh, Mr. Mears used one a lot um, on television programs and also because they are they are wieldy and they're also portable um, but they are a lot smaller than the traditional woodsman's axes um, of the north woods uh, they're, they're what <laughs> they're what the old woodsman would have called a boy's axe um, but you know if i'm if i'm hiking with a with a day pack this size the length of a small forest axe handle is um pretty similar to that and so I can strap it on or put it inside my day pack and and for those that are listening to this rather than watching this it's just a a small 30 litre day pack um, that I've got with me today. Um, you can put a, a small forest axe in that bag or on the side of that bag without the handle or the helve whichever you prefer whichever term you prefer from extending beyond that and catching on overhanging branches and what have you and also it's not that heavy but still has a good heft to it now it's not as heavy as a as a full size axe it's not as heavy as a splitting axe but for carving for light carving they're good for splitting uh, materials for fires they're pretty good for splitting material out for feather sticks they're good for blanking out a spoon on a on a stump or on a fallen log i find them pretty good um, if you want a more hefty axe i would look at the scandinavian forest axe um, and also there's a version of that called the wilderness axe which has got heavier head but you'd have a hard time carving with that that's more for chopping down densely uh, dense ringed uh, pine and spruce in the northern forest. The Scandinavian forest axe, if you, found the, if you found the small forest axe a bit small and lightweight, maybe the Scandi axe, but it's harder to carve with. It's got a longer handle. To do one-handed carving, it's a little bit more difficult. So the thing about the small forest axe is it's one of the 
best all-round axes. It's not the best double-handed axe. It's not the best carving axe. But as a general purpose, single point of contact, just take the axe. That's all I'm going to take. It's not bad. You can do a lot with it. If, if I really want to have a heavy carving session, I'll buy, if I don't have one already, but I have several, um, I'll use a uh, Swedish carving axe. Um, this, I think that's the proper name for them. The, the article where I carved the whole set of implements for the Frost River Roll, the axe that I used there is a wonderful axe for carving. And the Swedish carver, Vili Sundqvist, had a lot of input into those axes, and they're fantastic for carving, much more efficient and effective than the, than the small forest axe. Um, equally, if I go to the northern forest and I'm doing a lot of felling and a lot of splitting, then I'm gonna take a Scandinavian forest axe because it's still quite portable, I can pop it in my toboggan or one of my toboggan bags but I can take it out I can use it double-handed I've got those denser that denser wood in the northern forest because it grows more slowly to chop through um, and I can have a real go at it with the uh, the Scandinavian forest axe and it's also a brilliant axe for limbing trees as well that's what it was designed for really once you've got a tree down you can go along and take all the limbs off and you can get a lot of branches off in just one swoop with that with that axe it's a great length for that um, but some techniques like splitting between your legs that technique which is great for for, for working on on snow you can't do with a Scandinavian forest axe because the handle's too long. Uh, you either hit the ground with the blade or you hit yourself in the, uh, in the gonads with the end of the handle because you're trying to hold the blade above the ground. Even with legs as long as mine, I've got quite long legs, I can't do the between the legs splitting technique with a Scandinavian forest axe. So if you want something with a bit more oomph, for general use, go for the Scandinavian forest axe. If you want something with more weight for carving, go for the Swedish carving axe. Those would be my top two recommendations there, Richard. And if you've, if you've got the option, if you're just in a base camp in the woods for a week, take both. Um, you know, you're there to get the most out of your time. We're only on this planet for a short period of time. It's hard to get all the things done that we need to get done. The axes are only, you know, two, both of those axes will cost you less than a handmade bushcraft knife get both of them, take them to the woods, use them and enjoy yourself. And that brings me to the end of episode 19. And it, I can see the screen facing me um, and what the video will look like. It's going to be quite grainy because it's starting to get dark now. You can hear the pheasants going up to roost. It looks brighter on the screen than it actually is around me. The gain on the camera has gone up automatically. Um, uh, but it's getting quite dingy now. I've got through a lot of questions there, quite a marathon session but I've really, really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed being out in this environment here today. I'm gonna to hike back to uh, my parents' house now, which is about a mile and a half hike back and the way I'm gonna go. So I'll do that just in time for it getting properly dark. Um, I do, of course, have my head torch with me. I do, of course, have all of those things with me all the time. So hope you're enjoying being out at this time of year as well. Uh, do make the most of the short daylight hours if you're in the northern hemisphere and if you're in the southern hemisphere i'm envious of those long days that you've got at the moment um, but enjoy wherever you are thanks for listening um, first episode of 2016 so hope you all have a fantastic 2016 and i look forward to seeing you on the next show which will be out next week see you then cheers